Shabbat Shalom and welcome to the Mussan household. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. As I light our Shabbat candles to set apart this special gift for our family, may it remind us all of the light of Messiah that shines in us and in our home. As I cover my eyes, may we be reminded that before Messiah opens our eyes, we cannot see the glories and the joy of all on which his light sheds understanding. With my hands, I spread the light of the candles throughout our home to express my desire as a wife and mother that the light of Messiah and the joy of his Shabbat rest be spread throughout our home. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Malech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'mitzvotav, Vitzivanu Lehiot or Legoyim Vanatan Lanu, Et Yeshua Meshikenu or HaOlam. Blessed are you, Adonai our Elohim, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now for the Kiddush. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now, for the blessing over the bread. Amotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to Yah for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Amotzi lechem min haaretz, Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. And now, the blessing for the wife. Adonai, my Elohim, thank you for the incredibly wonderful wife that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May she be, as it says in your word, a woman of valor, more precious than jewels, in whom my heart may trust and my fortune is found. Amen. And the blessing for the husband. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the husband that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May he be, as it says in your word, a man whose delight is in your Torah. May he be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Amen. Blessing for the children. Behold! Children are a gift of Adonai. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Blessing for the sons. Yisimcha Elohim ke'Ephraim v'ki Manasseh. May Elohim make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the sons that you have given me. May they be, as it says in your word, men whose delight is in your holy Torah, gracious, compassionate, and righteous, fearing no evil, but with a steadfast heart to 
trusting in you. Amen. And the blessing for our daughters. Adonai, our Elohim, we thank you for the daughters that you have blessed us with. May they be, as it says in your word, women of valor, more precious than jewels, arrayed in strength and majesty, and whose mouths open with wisdom so that the teaching of kindness may be upon their tongues. Amen. Shabbat shalom, Shabbat shalom, Shabbat shalom. May the peace of Adonai be with you always. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Adonai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai hamvorach leolam vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Michamocha, Nedar Bakodesh. Noratehilot. O sefele, O sefele, who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, Lord? There is none Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. All together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat. La'asot et ha-Shabbat la-doratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshishet yamin asa Aronai et hashemayim va'et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat va'yinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Veshinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, veshivtecha, bebeftcha, uflechtecha, vederech, uvshuch becha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. So as you walk by love, hang your robe down low. Hang your robe down low. Son of David, hear my cry. Son of David, hear my cry. I cannot be silent. My Savior's walking by. So So I 
Judah with Lion Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our Erev Shabbat broadcast for B'nai Shalom. Uh, this Sabbath is the Sabbath uh, that the Torah portion is Vayigash, and we are in the latter chapters of Genesis. We are at the part of the story in Genesis where uh, in the previous week um, the brothers had come to Egypt to buy grain again they had been required by Joseph to bring their younger brother, Benjamin. He had come. They were entreated very kindly by Joseph, whom they don't know as Joseph. And they were loading up and very happy to go back. When suddenly uh, there's an accusation that some of them have stolen from Joseph his cup or a piece of his cup. And it was a very special cup that only Joseph had. And there was a big deal about this cup. Well, the, in the search that followed, of course, the bold statement was made by Judah, who was the leader of the band, that uh, if anybody has done such a thing, may they be enslaved for the rest of their life and all that. 
Well, they go through all the bags, and they come down to Benjamin last, and sure enough, this cup is in Benjamin's bag. And, of course, Benjamin is going, I, I didn't put it there, you know, and the other brothers are saying, well, oh, my gosh, this, this thing has, has happened. And they're hauled back to have to stand in front of Joseph. Whereas before, they had been very happy in Joseph's presence. They had a nice meal with him and so forth. Now they're under condemnation by Joseph, and there's great concern about what's about to happen. And it appears that Benjamin is not ever going to be permitted to go home. He's going to become entrapped in Egypt and probably imprisoned or suffer worse. Now, Judah had promised their father, Jacob, that he would be a surety for Benjamin. He would guarantee that Benjamin would, would be brought back. And at this moment, Judah asked to speak to Joseph uh, uh, to give explanation. And in chapter 44, he gives this very impassioned speech to Joseph basically not making the argument for himself or for Benjamin or the other brothers, but he makes the argument for his father, Jacob. And he basically kind of tells the story of their family, of the brothers, about how they did have another brother, they're referring to Joseph, and about how he was gone and that Jacob had accepted the fact that he had died at the hands of a wild beast, and there was no sense go looking for him, and so forth. And that immediately gave an answer to Joseph as to what, what did my father do, and what, what were they saying about this whole thing when I got sold into Egypt? He learns what happened there, but he listens to Judah plead the case for his father, saying that the first time he lost a son, it almost killed him. If he loses Benjamin, it will surely bring him to the grave. Now, one of the things that um, is going through Joseph's mind about all of this that's taking place is, one, God gave him some dreams earlier in his life that told him that there was a day coming when his brothers would bow down to him, all of them. And that's what prompted him to insist that Benjamin had to come back the second time. He had this dream that told him that's what was going to be happening. And the, the second thing was that um, he saw the, how his brothers had viciously mistreated him. Simeon had called for his death. Uh, Judah had said, let's sell him. Reuben had, had offered, well, I'll deliver him a little bit later on, but he wouldn't stand up to his brothers, and, and things happened before Reuben could do anything. So there's this chaos amongst all of his brothers. Not one of them is willing to love their fellow brethren and try to actually do good. And there's none that are willing to help Joseph in this situation. So he is measuring out, can these brothers stand up for anybody? Can they stand up for a fellow brother? And this is where Judah steps in, and he explains how he is trying to protect his father from the harm of losing Benjamin, and that he is a surety for Benjamin that he will lay down his life. He'll offer himself as a substitute 
for Benjamin so that Benjamin can go home. And at this point, Joseph sees that all the issues that had been in the past, the foretelling of the dream, the way his brothers had acted, concern for his father, all of those kinds of things, he now understood all of the dynamic that was taking place. And he was truly moved that he saw that the brothers had changed. In particular, that Judah, the leader of them, had changed. And instead of just walking away and ignoring the loss of another brother, by the way, another brother that had the same mother as Joseph, instead of walking away from him, they were willing to lay down their lives to protect him. Obviously, their hearts had changed. Something was dramatically different in how they viewed things. And I think part of it had to do with, I don't think the brothers uh, understood the harm that was going to be done to their father uh, when they went back and said that Joseph wasn't anymore. I think they, you know, their envy against Joseph and so forth, and the fact that they disliked the situation, you know, let's get rid of this dreamer of dreams fella. Uh, they, that's as far as they could think. But they couldn't understand the additional harm they were going to do that would come back on their father. And as the scripture says to us, Jacob almost died in despair upon hearing the loss of Joseph. They saw the damage they did to him. And I think they were truly sorry for that. And so that's what sets the stage for Judah to make this impassioned speech. Well, as the Torah portion goes on, um, there is this scene in which that uh, all the other servants are told to get out of the room, and Joseph weeps. He weeps profusely, so loud that the other servants in another part of the house can hear Joseph crying out and weeping because at this point, for Joseph, this whole tragedy that has taken place with him and his family and his brothers and so forth, it is going to come to a conclusion. There's going to be reconciliation. All the harm that had been done, it's done. It's coming to a conclusion. And there's going to be restoration that will take place. And that's what sets the stage for then Joseph to suddenly, shockingly, say to the brothers, I am Joseph, your brother. And they're like, what? And they're almost like speechless. And suddenly the reunion comes together, and now it's a real reunion in which they're asking about their father, and they're recounting what has taken place since then, and so forth. And the stage is now set. Yes, they're going to make another journey back to their father, but they're making a journey back with stuff that came from Joseph that says, Jacob, load up your, all your possessions. Come to Egypt. Uh, the Lord has prepared a place for you in this great famine, and I will take care of you. And so that's what our Torah portion is about. So the Haftor portion, interestingly enough, is going to give us an equally dramatic reunification of the brothers that takes place associated with Joseph. 
And so our, our Haftor portion comes from Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning at verse 15. Let me read a few verses for you. It says, The word of the Lord again came to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all of the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to another, in one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will become one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before your eyes. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king over all of them. They will no longer be two nations. They will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols and with their detestable things or with any of the transgressions. But I will deliver them from all of their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land which I gave to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived and they will live on it and they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David my servant will be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctified Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. This passage of scripture is describing a huge millennial conflict that has been within Israel. Like the brothers who couldn't get along with one another and hated Joseph and sold him to slavery, cast him off to other nations, the same thing has happened on, a, on, shall we say, a corporate level for the whole nation of Israel. The northern tribes, led by Jeroboam, split off from the, the land of Judah and the house of Judah. And then because of captivity, northern Israel, the house of Israel, was sent into captivity. And we have the house of Judah. And certain judgments fell upon uh, the house of Israel, one of which was they lost their identity. They didn't know who they really were. And the, the prophet Hosea specifically referred to them as lo ami, not my people. They became so assimilated that they didn't really realize who they were, and for all intents and purposes, they weren't there anymore. They weren't part of Israel anymore. 
Well, the same thing happened to Joseph. When Joseph went down into Egypt, he effectively became an Egyptian. In fact, he rose to power as an Egyptian leader. And he married an Egyptian wife. And he had sons. He had children. His family was regarded as an Egyptian family. They, he looked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. When the brothers showed up to buy grain, and they see their brother in front of them, the last thing in their thinking is that guy is one of our brothers. Now, Joseph knew who he was. He knew where he came from. But do you see the split? There is this dynamic where there's one group that knows who they are and this other group that doesn't think they know who they are. And specifically, the house of Israel doesn't know who they really are. And the house of Judah is just fine with them being gone. Just fine with it. And for many years, we read in biblical history, all the way through the days of, of Yeshua, that, oh yeah, we know there's that group, you know, the house of Israel, they left, the Syrian captivity, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they're not really part of us. Um, if some of them come back, well, they'll join us and they'll be part of us. And uh, they went into Babylon, Judah went into Babylon captivity, came back, we had the Messiah come, and then we developed rabbinical Judaism. The, the Judah then got sent into captivity through the Romans, and we still have this division, even now that both groups are um, in captivity, scattered throughout the world, and they're not, they're not together. Just like the brothers came down on Egypt and all of a sudden found themselves in the same trouble, they ended up going into prison for a little bit. You know, the house of Judah has gone out in the nations. It didn't work out good for them either. But we have this huge division within what is the Bible calls Israel. But this prophecy says something interesting is going to happen. It's based on in the days when Judah is back in the land. And by the way, Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet who was in Babylon when this took place. And he saw a day when Judah would go back to the land. In fact, Daniel spoke of it. We History, we know wise. Jeremiah spoke. They'd only be there for 70 years. And, and sure enough, those prophecies were true. Judah did go back to the land. And so Ezekiel said, there's going to be a day when Judah is in the land. Now, he didn't prophesy about the worldwide captivity. Other prophets prophesied of that. But in this generation, specifically uh, in 1948 and 1949, we have seen the house of Judah, the Jewish people, scattered in the nations from the Romans, they have come back to the land, and we have a, a modern state of Israel. This prophecy is based on that Judah has to be in the land. Now, we had it for a while after the Babylonian cavity. We definitely have it now. Was this prophecy fulfilled shortly after the Babylonian captivity, like some would like to suggest in the Messianic movement? No. Absolutely not. And some feign argument about some of those elements came back and joined Judah at that time is nonsense. And by the way, I would remind my Messianic Jewish brethren, 
advocating such a position, the entire rabbinical Judaism community dismisses that thought. They know this is a future prophecy. Part of the reason they know this is a future prophecy of these days, that if you read first Ezekiel 37, the passage that leads into this, it's the vision of the valley of bones, dry bones. And today, nobody argues with the interpretation of the dry bones being raised up, sinew being muscle, flesh, and so forth, and a spirit put in them. Nobody disputes that is a prophecy of the modern state of Israel that has now come into existence. So that prophecy precedes this one and sets the stage for Judah to be in the land. And then the prophecy goes that God is going to take Ephraim, the house of Ephraim, the son of Joseph. The split is between Joseph and the brothers. Judah is the spokesman for the brothers. So the split is between Judah and Ephraim. Oh, by the way, going back to our Torah portion about last week, where the question is, well, who in the world put that cup in Benjamin's sack? You know what the, the rabbinical people say? It was um, Ephraim, the son of Joseph. He was instructed by his father, put that cup in Benjamin's sack. Ephraim was a part of that dynamic way back in Genesis. And so now he's at the forefront of the dynamic here at the end of the age. Judah and Ephraim, the son of Joseph. And this prophecy goes on to say, describe this incredible reconciliation. This incredible moment when um, the house of Ephraim now joins with the house of Judah. They become one in the hand of the Lord. They have the same king, same government, live in the same land. The restoration of back to the days of King David and King Solomon. Guess what it also mentions about King David? Getting the nation back to what it was like when King David was king. When all the tribes are unified together in the same land. And he goes on further to talk about that when they come back under that, they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them, 20, verse 24. A return to Torah. That whereas they've been scattered in the nations, didn't want to follow the commandments of the Lord. When they return, they return with the Torah. They return with the instructions of the commandments and pledge to keep the commandments of the Lord. Guess what is happening in today? We have the house of Judah and the land of Israel, and there's this incredible movement around the world in the Christian world, specifically called the Messianic movement, in which there's this group of people, we don't quite know who they really are, and they are turning back to the Torah. The stage is set for this prophecy to be fulfilled, that God is going to pull the Bnei Ephraim, the sons of Ephraim, and those of the house of Israel, which by the way were ten tribes, they're going to bring them back and join with the brother Judah. That's what we saw in the Torah portion. Judah 
representing, brought Joseph back to the brethren. And that's what's going to happen here. God is going to bring Ephraim, Joseph, back to Judah. And that's the reason why this portion is the Hoftor portion with the Torah portion. Now, before I leave it, I have to address this one because it's um, poignant for our times. And that's verse 26. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in the midst of forever, and my dwelling place also will be with them. That is a description, brethren, of the messianic kingdom. That's a description of that shortly after this reconciliation takes place between the brothers and the tribes of Israel, the Messiah is going to return and establish his kingdom. And when the Messiah returns, he comes with another covenant. You know, when he was here the first time, he gave us the new covenant. He's going to bring another covenant. This is called the covenant of peace. This is the final covenant of the seven covenants that God has been showing to us in all of the scripture. This is the covenant that God has with his people in the kingdom. And he speaks specifically of the days of being in the kingdom, about how the Lord will dwell with us in his sanctuary in Jerusalem, and he will be there with us. That's the way the prophecies of the messianic kingdom tell us. We don't go to heaven per se, when this kingdom comes. The Messiah comes to us, and he dwells here with us. We don't go dwell beyond a bunch of clouds with Cupid angels. He's coming here. All of this that we're reading now, that we've read in this Haftor portion, this is a very powerful teaching within the Jewish world. This is referring to what is called the final redemption of Israel. The final redemption includes the restoration of all the members of the family coming back together, recognizing one another, honoring one another, not having that conflict anymore amongst brethren, and having peace. And in fact, the covenant is called the covenant of peace. If you can't have peace in your family, you can't have peace with anything else. There is no such thing as if you being at peace with the world and all the other people, but there's no peace in your house. You have to have peace in your house first before you could ever attempt to have peace outwards into the world. And so God is going to come and establish peace within the house of Israel and the house of Judah, making them one before the Lord, and that will spread to the house of the covenant of peace to all the nations of the world and the whole world that will follow. Thus, that's the description of the messianic kingdom. This is a very, very powerful prophetic uh, part of the scripture. It's picturesque in how it's presented. Um, these two sticks, they're coming together. They become suddenly one. Uh, together in the hand of the Lord, uh, which is a very powerful picture of unification and so forth. You know, uh, just as a final comment, I have heard a lot of different preachers. 
and messianic leaders talking about the subject, we need unification, we need unity amongst the brethren. Because there's conflict amongst the brethren. Within the messianic movement, let's be honest about this, the messianic movement is very messy. We have different teachers. The messianic movement doesn't have a single unified leader. There's a multitude of leaders in various places. There's no one single organization that's championing the messianic movement. There's multiple organizations. Do they cooperate with each other and get along with each other? Heck no. Even within the same city, different messianic congregations can't cooperate with each other. You want to know why? I can tell you why. Because we're descendants of the sons of Israel. We got the same conflicts amongst us that they did. Right down to that some of our own brethren would just as soon take you and sell you into slavery or kill you. We got the same level of conflict. How are we ever going to have unity? How are we ever going to be able to resolve all of these differences that we have? And I'm not talking about the greater Christian world. I am talking about just in the Messianic movement. We have to build one, one synagogue. We all have to build one assembly. What do we do about all the other nations? You know, where we're scattered at. I mean, how, how, do, how do we pull that off? Well, I can tell you how to pull it off, because the Lord specifically has told us how he's going to do it. We need the Messiah to return and wreck everybody's theology and humble everybody up, and then he can unify us. And then we will go to Jerusalem to his sanctuary to worship the Lord. That will be the time of peace. That will be the time of unity. So our Torah portion and Hoff Torah portion is about a great promise of reconciliation and brethren being joined together. I pray for the same unity in your congregation and wherever you're at with all of your neighbors and with all of your brethren. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 24. Hold your finger at verse 13, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for coming together uh, in our communities and in our families, Lord, to hear from your word and your instruction. And Father, we thank you now for this New Testament portion. Father, I pray that it ministers to us, encourages us, and strengthens us in our faith in you. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you give to us on this Sabbath day and now for this time of teaching. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. The Torah portion this week, Vayagash, which is the time in which Joseph was revealed to his brothers, in which he finally came out and said that him being the viceroy of Egypt, he had had some time and some interactions with his brothers without them knowing that they were coming and buying grain in Egypt because of the great worldwide famine that was taking place. And of course, he had, there were some instances in which he was, where he planted a cup in uh, Benjamin's bag and they had to then come back 
back and they had to meet with him again. And he had thrown Simeon in prison for a, for a bit of time as well. And so there were some interactions and the brothers, they always had this feeling or the sense that they were being punished. And in truth be told, they were, but they didn't know truly what the source of that punishment was. They thought that it was because of what they did to their brother and the harm that they had caused their father by telling him that his beloved son had died and that this is all, uh, all of this is coming, coming back to them and, and all this punishment that's coming upon them because of what they did. But of course, we have the story in the beginning of our Torah portion here about Judah coming and being the one, being the surety for Benjamin and him pouring his heart out as to learn and to know what it is to stand up for his brother. And that was when Joseph broke down. That is when he could not stand it any longer and revealed himself. Well, the whole idea, um, I didn't have time to get into this in last week's portion, but the whole idea of Joseph revealing himself to his brothers was this idea that he was their brother. He was in a position that they would have never expected. He appeared like he was in the world as, as an Egyptian, and they did not recognize him, even though he was their kin. And what I want to do is I want to bring out in the New Testament portion that same concept of not being recognized by the brethren. Now, we, of course, know that after the resurrection of the Messiah, you now know kind of why we're going to be reading the passage that we're going to be reading. Before we get into that, I should point out that the people who knew Yeshua best, his disciples, his friends, those that knew him, after he was risen from the grave, he was not recognized by them. We see this also in John chapter 20, verses 14, where Mary Magdalene did not recognize him. He came and he spoke to her, and she presumed him to be the gardener. That When she came to see that Yeshua's body was now no longer in the tomb, the stone had been moved, and she pleaded with him as to, if you know what happened to the body, please reveal. And then that's when he did reveal himself to Mary Magdalene. And now we have the story about the road to Emmaus where he will interact with some of the disciples walking on the road, and they don't recognize him. They don't know that he is their master, their savior. And we sit there and wonder, and a lot of people have had theories about this as time has gone on, about how when, God, when Yeshua rose from the grave, did he truly have a different physical appearance? Was he given a new body, similar to what we believe we will do when we are resurrected from this world, and then when we go into the kingdom, that we will have new bodies, will be a new creation, so much so that will we appear like we physically do today on this earth? There's a huge question about that. Will those that died old, will they be given younger bodies and they'll appear young once again? You know, will, there still, will we still age in the same way? We, we don't know any of these questions, and so this is one of those theories that are out there that we can sit and we can midrash all day long about, you know, what this means or what this might be. And the fact that the disciples did not recognize Yeshua kind of in, is added to that discussion of what happens when we die. Is there a new body that is given to us, one that our best friends might not even recognize? You know, another theory also is that the last time they saw Yeshua, that he was brutally beaten, that he was, that, that, that he was unrecognizable at that point in time, and he always appeared very humble, looking like he had very humble origins. He was a man that, that the uh, Greeks, or um, uh, the uh, Romans, had to hire somebody to, uh, to, rec- to point him out. Like, we don't even know what the guy looks like. 
And so there's a lot of thought that the Messiah himself that he was, he, he appeared very lowly, not that he was some, uh, you know, man with an amazing uh, physique and a physical appearance that where he, he shined when I mean, it was a crowd. It's like, no, all the, all the gospel accounts kind of point out that he didn't stand out from among the crowd. He stood out when he spoke or when he's revealed his spirit. That's when people took notice or recognized, but his physical appearance didn't follow suit. Is it also that when he rose from the grave, that then his physical appearance did appear that of, of somebody who was royal, noble, that or he was, it's like a man who was cleaned up and who was put on clean robes, like going from somebody who looked like they were a prisoner all the way to somebody looking like they're royalty. This, of course, parallels like once again to the life of Joseph, that that's exactly what happened to him coming out of prison in these garments and being put on Joseph. And then he lived for a number of years in Egypt and started to look like he was an Egyptian. In the case of the Messiah, did he just have a completely different natural appearance? Or one of the other theories is, is that spiritually they didn't recognize him. There was some sort of supernatural power by which that he... They were not able to see or recognize him, even though he had the same physical appearance. Their eyes were, were spiritually or miraculously blinded by knowing truly who he was. All of those theories, I've heard people uh, suggest all, every single one of those. Whether I agree with one over another, I actually can't say if I necessarily uh, believe that one truly has a stronger uh, testimony. But what I do want to do is I do want to read this story because it absolutely does parallel what happens with Joseph when he then was revealed to his brothers. So now let us read the story on the road to Emmaus that comes to us from Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13, where it says this, Now behold, two of them, that was the disciples, that were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all the things that had just happened. So it was, while they conversed and they reasoned, that Yeshua himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Yeshua of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, this is Yeshua speaking again now, and slow of heart to believe. In all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now the story continues as the disciples' eyes are opened. It says this now at verse 28. Then they drew near to the village 
where they were going, and he, in, in, um, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up from that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, those who were with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread." The story continues on, and then he continues to show himself and reveal himself, and he appears before the disciples. And he says, and, and let me continue on. I do want to mention one, one other thing the Messiah said. Let's continue reading now at verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Yeshua himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had, supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt why do doubts arise in your hearts behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see it see I have and when he had said this he showed his hands and his feet and while they stood they did not believe still did not believe for joy and marveled he said to them have, any, have you any food here? So they gathered a, a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it, and he ate in their presence. So this is the Messiah, and, and, and as the story, and, and you can see the feelings, then, and, and assume what the feelings were of the disciples when they saw their master arisen from the dead. Now, they believing him to be the Messiah, that he had the power over death, but still, once you see it, you then believe it. And he, it's like he was risen from the dead. Well, for the brothers of Joseph back in Egypt, this was the same feeling. They had sold Joseph many years previous, and he was, and, and, and he, as far as they were concerned, he was long dead. He was long gone. He was, he, there was never going to be revealed or, or ever see him ever again. So when he finally did reveal himself, when he finally did cry out, and, and to which all of Egypt could hear, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, they, they didn't believe him. They stood still. They were astonished. And it wasn't until they came nearer to him or came closer to him that they finally realized that it was their brother and that he was alive. And that was the whole story. And you can go back to our Torah portion and all the scriptures always talking about that he's alive. Your brother's alive. Go tell Jacob, our father, that I am alive, that he, that, that, that he is not dead because that, that was the assumption that he was dead. He was gone. In fact, that's definitely what Jacob thought because it was the brothers who brought the tunic with the blood on it that Jacob then, you know, his mind went wild enough to know that he had been surely been torn to bits by a beast and that his son was long dead. This whole concept of the revealing of Joseph to his brothers and to his family is a concept of resurrection. As far as they were concerned, their brother was resurrected from the dead. And here we have, of course, the Messiah himself. That, of course, is his testimony. Now, when he was revealed, the brothers, they got very afraid. They were very much dismayed that, you know, now that it's all like, oh, my gosh, Joseph, you're alive. 
Joseph, you're alive, like, and you're the most powerful man in the world, and you could kill us if you so desired with the position and authority that you have right now, knowing that they had done wrong. The brothers were very troubled after Joseph had revealed himself to them. In fact, their troubles and their concerns carried over all the way through the rest of their lives, all the way until their fa- even after their father Jacob died in Egypt, later on in the book of Genesis, they then were once again afraid because now for uh, the father being alive, that it's like he's now dead. Joseph still has the power that he could kill us if he so still had vengeance in his heart for what they had done to him originally. And what Joseph said to them is similar to what the, what the Messiah said to the disciples. First of all, he said on the road to Emmaus, he said this, O foolish one, slow to heart, believe the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? The idea is this, is that those sufferings, the Messiah dying, even though it caused great distress in the hearts of the disciples, was necessary for life to be given for God to be glorified. The Messiah said this, continuing on here in Luke 24, He said this at verse 46, the Messiah talking to the disciples again, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are uh, endued with power from on high. All of these things had to happen. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. Joseph reassured his brothers the same. It was necessary. Yes, I was sold and I became a slave and I went to prison, but all of that was necessary. All of that was God's plan originally so that all the world might be saved. The, the parallel here is exactly the same, the, the, the cycle of the story that truly the Messiah is the son of Joseph. In fact, that's one of the most fascinating things is that literally the physical earthly father of the Messiah, his name was Joseph. And yet all the parallels of the Messiah, his life, the means by which he brought salvation to the world, and the means by which he was sold out by his brethren, risen up to the right hand of the Father, given all power and authority over all things in heaven and earth. And it's the same story, the same story of what happened to Joseph the patriarch and what happened to the Messiah, the son of Joseph. All this idea of not being recognized by his brothers and then revealing himself I have to once again point out the parallel to what will happen at the end of the age when the Messiah is revealed to the whole world, particularly to the Jewish people, because that is the thing that is going to be, what's the relationship between Messiah Yeshua and the Jewish people? Because, you know, you know general school of thought, maybe this is oversimplifying, many people believe that it was the Jews that killed the Messiah. I mean, it was the religious authority and the Pharisees that went about all of the actions by which Yeshua was crucified, put on, or tri- put on trial, accused, and, put, and crucified. So it's like these are the people that are physically responsible for the death of the Messiah when you're talking about the Pharisees. And out of Pharisaic Judaism 
came some of what we understand and through enough time has become what modern-day Judaism is as well. In fact, what the understanding of modern-day Judaism is that you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It's like the two are incompatible. If you confess faith in, in Jesus, you're no longer a Jew. But we who are messianic, we see the bridge, we see the parallel, we see, look, he was the Messiah. He was the Jewish Messiah that was promised, that they've been praying for, that is the answer and the fulfillment to all Torah and the commandments and the fulfillment of prophecies and all these things. And the Jewish people missed it. They don't see it. They don't see that what Yeshua did was the fulfillment of those things. And they, But we are praying for the day in which... All of Judaism will realize that when they will give their hearts over to the Messiah and that it will be the Messiah revealed to them and perhaps they won't be revealed until the second coming. They'll see the, the, sign, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven of great glory. He'll show up and he'll say he's the Messiah and they'll know he's the Messiah. No question he's the Messiah. And they're like, what is your name? And he'll say, Yeshua of Nazareth. Wait, the same one? Or a different one. He's like, no, the same one. I came originally. This is my, now my second coming. Many Jews will think it's the first. But it will be this amazing revelation. And then suddenly, every, it'll hit them. Wait, the sa- wait a minute. The same Jesus of Nazareth that I've been uh, disregarding, that I've been insulting my whole life, that I have spoken ill of my entire, uh, within my religion of Judaism, my entire life, And then they're looking at the Messiah in a whole new way, wondering now, is judgment going to come upon me because what I did and what I said about who I perceived Jesus of Nazareth actually was, that he wasn't the Messiah? Same thing with the brothers and Joseph. This is the pattern of what will happen at the end of the age in the revelation of the Messiah to the Jewish people and to the whole world. Guess what? He won't look like one of them. He won't look like a Jew. He'll look like he's of the world, just like Joseph looked like an Egyptian. But the revelation of it and and the the time and the family reunion and the the weeping and hugging and holding and kissing and all all of those things that you can only imagine when you come to realize that your family, a family member has been resurrected from the dead. All of that will happen. And the Messiah will say, with grace and with truth, and will speak that all the sufferings were necessary so that life may be given, so that, so that we can all be saved, so that we can all be redeemed. And it is by that power that all of Israel will be redeemed and saved, and that, that it will be a wonderful thing at the end of the age. In the same way that this story back in Egypt and this, the whole family coming back together is such a beautiful thing. It's one of those passages of Scripture that I get a little teary-eyed. I'm not very emotional, honestly. But when I read about Judah's plea to Joseph and him revealing himself and, and then trying to you know, get word back to his father, it almost feels like there's almost a rush. Like, is his father still going to be alive? Like, if he ever died not knowing that his beloved son was still alive, what a tragedy that would be. Of course, the blessing is Jacob was still alive. And when it was revealed back to him that his son was alive, once again, he didn't believe it either. He didn't believe it, that, that, that he was there. And not only is he alive, but he's also the savior of the world. And that's what all of Israel will feel when the Messiah comes as well. 
at the, at the resurrection that we'll see and we will know that the Messiah is alive, the Messiah of Israel, and all of Israel might know that he, that he is alive, that he has been risen from the dead. See, that's the other thing that we live in, in the world we live in. Some people still question that. You know, Yeshua, you know, all the words that he spoke, he was a great prophet, but there are some who still question whether he was actually risen from the dead. Well, when he comes again, truly and surely, we will all know that he is risen from the dead, that he has conquered death, and that, that we have no fear any longer of the power of death over life, but life and God will prevail. All right, so after he has risen, Jacob, you know, the, the, once again, the, the testimony of the resurrection of his son, <clears throat> excuse me, which of course parallels here in the, uh, in the New Testament. If you would now turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Now, Acts chapter 7 in the uh, testimony of Stephen in, during his trial... He is recounting all of this history, and this is one of the common uh, passages that is read for this Torah portion, not only this portion, but for the last couple of Torah portions, because in a short paragraph here, he describes everything that was happening in Joseph, obviously reading here from the book of Acts in the New Testament. So if we can just, you know, tell the story of what happened in the Torah portion from the New Testament, we don't need to go any further, but here in Acts chapter 7. There is one thing that I want to point out that parallels back to our Torah portion and a bit of information that perhaps needs to be clarified. Some things that uh, uh, people question, riddles in the scripture, and hopefully I can clarify some of these things as well. But let's read starting at verse 9 in Acts chapter 7. And this is the story and the testimony of Stephen of exactly what happened to our patriarchs back in the book of Genesis. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, and the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And Joseph sent out and called his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And so they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham bought for the sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This is the story, continuing on just the whole summation of what happened with the sons of Jacob going down into Egypt and Jacob going there to live out the rest of his life. In our Torah portion in Genesis 46, we have the passage by which um, messengers have been sent to Jacob and say, gather up your household, your family, come to Egypt, come and dwell in the best land of Egypt to be preserved. We are two years into a seven-year famine. It's not going to get any better up there according to the will of God. So you need to come down here. There's grain here. You must be able to come down here so that you might be preserved here in Egypt. Once again, what happens to the fathers happens to the descendants. Abraham had to go down into Egypt for his life to be preserved. And Jacob now going down to Egypt for his life to be preserved during this famine. The Messiah himself, as an infant, had to go down to Egypt for his life to be preserved from the killing of the babies by King Herod. So all of that, there's a, once again, that same pattern. Now, 
If you go to Genesis 46, as we have in our Protestant Bibles and all of the uh, readings and the listings of all the names and all of those that came from the loins of Jacob, we have almost like a census of the family here, of them coming down to Egypt. In that passage of Scripture, it says that there are 70 persons that came down. And on all the listening of the names, you can count 69 of those. We've revealed before in the past that um, the, the mystery last person, the 70th person that made it down to Egypt was actually Yoheved, the mother of Moses, who was a daughter of Levi. And that though the name wasn't listed in Genesis 46, it, the story is, is that she was born shortly after entering into the land, coming to the land, and 70 people came with her. Well, as I said that in Genesis 46, it says 70 people came down. In Exodus chapter 1, it says 70 people came down. Here in Acts, in the testimony of Stephen, he says 75 people came down. And here we have one of those instances in which it appears that there is a discrepancy between the Old Testament and the New. What I have to point out here very, very quickly is that how we got the Protestant Bible that we have, that we read today, obviously came from the uh, Catholic Bible, in which then the Apocrypha and other books were removed as well. But all of those English translations of our Bible, all were translated from the Masoretic text, which was a Hebrew text that came a couple hundred years after the time in the story of the Messiah, by which all of these scriptures in the Old Testament were compiled by the group of the Masoretes who faithfully put and created the what we know as the Hebrew Tanakh, and what it, that's the Old Testament, and it, all of our English translations were translated from that. However, there are older manuscripts of the Old Testament, older instructions of, of uh, copies of, the, of those uh, particular books that, of course, predate the Messiah, because we know these were the Scriptures. The Messiah himself referenced the Torah, the Psalms, the Prophets, all of those writings all happened before the time of the Messiah, but our English translations come from a manuscript that came 200 years after the Messiah. So, if you go find an older manuscript, you might find some changes between it and the Masoretic text. And truth be told, that's exactly the case. There are records, and there is whether you go to the famous historian Josephus, there is also an older uh, document called the Samaritan Pentateuch, which the group of the Samaritans, which is the sect of Judaism that, uh, that dwells in, in the, and believes Mount Gerizim to be the, the mountain of God, and there's a whole disconnect. It still is a sect of Judaism. They have their own Pentateuch and their own scriptures. And then you also have another older uh, manuscript that is known as the Greek Septuagint, which was when a series of rabbis translated all of the ancient uh, scriptures and texts into Greek. And all of those manuscripts and the, and the records of Josephus, the historian, all predate the Masoretic text. If you go back to those texts, if you have an English copy of the Septuagint, you can go and find, very interestingly, Genesis 46, there is a different listing of the names. It's, some of it is identical. Some of it is slightly unique or different. In the um, Septuagint, it specifically lists the names of the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh, which you won't find in Genesis 46 of the Masoretic text or of our English Bibles. 
And when it all counts up all the names from those older manuscripts, indeed it says that 75 persons went down into Egypt according to the Septuagint and some of these other manuscripts that predate the Messiah. Also in Exodus 1, same story, where it says 70 in our English Bibles, it indeed says 75 persons in, uh, in the Greek Septuagint. So, if Stephen right here is speaking to the people, to his knowledge at the time, manuscripts that existed at the time of Stephen and at the time of the Messiah, indeed said 75 persons came down to Egypt. There is not a discrepancy according to the Scripture. Now, if we're simply looking at our English Bibles and don't understand, you know, somehow there are slight translation changes, then we might get very confused. And these are not the only changes And sometimes. The whole point that I would try to make is this. There is not a discrepancy in the testimony of Stephen. And what we also need, what I also need to teach is this. I in no way am I trying to compromise the Word of God as to say that because it's filled with errors that somehow we are not to believe it. Excuse me. Many people have come to faith in the Lord following Torah and His Word and His commandments and the revelation of God have come through these scriptures. Some of these technical details may be different or miscopied or, or dropped from some translation that came in a future time or a future copying of a manuscript by some sage somewhere. But just because some of these technical details might be slightly off does not mean that the Word of God in any way is compromised when it comes to its spiritual instruction and the faith that we should have in the Word of God. But I want to make sure that there's an understanding that there is not a discrepancy in the understanding of some of these details. If you sometimes go back to an older manuscript, Stephen, it's not that Stephen didn't know what he was saying or that he was misquoting what was actually in the Scripture, only that our English Bibles actually do have changes that came later so as to appear sometimes that there is a discrepancy. Such is not the case. So this, of course, being the time in which Stephen recounted all of these things, we do have to remember the whole point of all of this is the revelation of the Messiah. And his ability to save is immeasurable, just like Joseph was. And because of the way Joseph was preserved in Egypt, it was an incredible blessing to him and to his family so that his father and his family might be saved. There's another beautiful story that continues on our Torah portion toward the end where Joseph introduces his father to Pharaoh where he comes before, he appears before Pharaoh. And this is the Pharaoh that was the good Pharaoh. This is the one that, that, wrote, that raised Joseph up to this leadership. Whenever we think of the Pharaoh of Egypt, I think in our minds we're always thinking of, you know, the exodus and how evil he was and the plagues and how hardened his heart was. But this king over, uh, over Egypt at this time was a good king a king that desired for, that, that, that saw the Spirit of God in Joseph and was, at, was desiring for people to, to live and to not die. And this isn't the one that put the, the children of Israel into bondage. And so we have this amazing honor bestowed upon Jacob to appear before Pharaoh. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? And he says, my, my pilgrimage, I believe, is 130 years, is, I think it is what it said. And so there's this meeting and if we're thinking about all the symbolism of, that each character represents, think about this for a minute. I've been describing the story as Pharaoh almost as if he's the master of the world. 
almost as if he is God, God the Father, that he is the one that, that, is the, that raised up Joseph to be at his right hand in the same way that God the Father raised up Yeshua to be at his right hand. So Pharaoh in this story embodies God the Father. Joseph, of course, embodies Yeshua, the Savior of the world. Jacob, of course, embodies Israel. That was his name. It was, that was the people, the people of God. Also, you can, I could also say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because you can think about the entire planting of the Lord and what, uh, and what Israel and all of his sons, how it grew and spread to be a kingdom of priests to all nations. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that is embodied through the life of Israel and its descendants. So we can also say this is a, a meeting of the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I also look at it this way. Because I'm going back to that prophecy I was talking about. Joseph, Yeshua, the Messiah is revealed to the whole world. We then have all the judgment and Joseph still had work to do to uh, distribute food during the course of the famine. And there was still more work to do, even though the Messiah had been revealed. And then we have this bringing together. And I can see it this way. Yeshua is the one who is bringing Israel to meet God the Father. It is by Yeshua. When Yeshua said, no one goes to the Father except through me, well, guess what? Nobody was meeting Pharaoh except going through Joseph. And it was Joseph, the Messiah at the time, the one who saved the world, brings and brings Israel to God the Father. If that's not the parallel of the, the very plan of God and what the role of Yeshua is, I don't know what else can compare from Yeshua being our ambassador, our intercessor, our high priest that is the intermediary between us and God the Father, in the same way in that role, Joseph did exactly the same for his father to meet Pharaoh, the king of the world. So in all of this, we see the great plan of God, what the role of the Messiah is, to be the one that we call upon to bring us to God and into His presence so that we can enter into covenant with Him, so that we can do business with God and we can confess to the Creator of heaven and earth our love to Him and the covenant and the relationship that we have, which is what God intended from the very beginning, why He created man, why it's not good for us to be alone, and His entire desire is to dwell with us and dwell with His people. That's the whole plan of God, and such is embodied in the story of Joseph and the salvation to the world and to his family to be preserved in Egypt. What an amazing story it is. And I just love the, the parallels between Joseph and the Messiah are completely uncanny. I can't state it enough that I don't know how you can understand the power of Yeshua without first knowing the story of Joseph. And that if you know the story of Joseph, then surely you will see the salvation of Israel in Messiah Yeshua. The two are intertwined. If you ever are talking to somebody that believes in the Torah but not in Yeshua, or follows Yeshua but doesn't follow anything in the Torah, this might be the first stop in sitting down and saying, hey, let's have a Bible study. Let's talk about, you know, you, you usually talk about the, the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New, and, but let's do it on, with the eyes, with the, through the lens of Joseph. <clears throat> Excuse me. Or you're used to talking about Yeshua and you know all these things. Let's read the Old Testament and let's read the story of Joseph through the eyes of Yeshua. I believe this story and this parallel is one of the bridges by which 
You can sit down with somebody that believes one and not the other and that it might be this, that they, their eyes would be opened and that the revelation of the God of the Old Testament is one and the same with the God of the New Testament. That is what my hope would be if we are teaching one another, lifting up one another, and so that their, so one's eyes might be open just as Joseph's eyes were open. So with that said, and as we are wrapping up next week, the, the story of Joseph and uh, his family as they dwell in Egypt, then we will soon be getting into the story of, Exod- of the Exodus and getting into Moses as well. Um, once again, let's go before the Lord and thank him for the revelation of his scriptures and the stories of old. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this time of study, for your scriptures, and once again for the life of Joseph, Lord, and for sending your son, Yeshua. Father, I pray that our eyes would be opened, that you would spiritually open our eyes and reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to the world, Father. Reveal yourself to your people. Father, may all confess with their hearts and with their mouths, Lord, that you are our Lord and Savior, that you are king over all Israel, king over all the earth, Lord. So reveal yourself, Lord. Though you might look different than what we might be expecting, what we might, uh, we, we might see the Messiah in somebody that we wouldn't expect. Father, I pray that we all power and glory go to you, Lord. That when those encounters happen, when those divine interventions take place, when one is sharing with another the work and the the good news and the testimony that you have given to us through your word, Father. Father, may our hearts not grow cold and bitter and hard, but Father, may may our hearts be soft to receive your word and may our eyes and ears be opened to truth and to revelation. For only you can reveal those things to us, Father. So, Father, I pray that all of your people, Lord, might have their eyes spiritually opened, just as the brothers of Joseph, when they saw their brother, and then they knew that salvation was had, and that even though they had great fear and trepidation at the time, Father, it was you who had your hand and your will on all of it. So we love you, we bless you, and we thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for all of these teachings and instructions. We thank you for your Sabbath, and I thank you, Lord, for all the people, Lord. And I pray all of them have a wonderful Sabbath of rest and refreshment. And in our homes and in our hearts, Father, may we always give you the praise and the glory. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray these things. Amen and Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.